Y'all ready? Super ready. So ready. So ready. I was born ready. I was molded by ready. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of us. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 52 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey there. We also have Merrick Christensen. What up? AJ O'Neill. How do you decide the order each week? I just make it up. Okay, it's always random. And Jameson Dance. Hey guys. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And we have a special guest that's Isaac. I know I'm going to destroy your last name. Schutsch. Let me see if I can say Schutsch. You, you say it. Schluter. <laughs> Schluter. <laughs> yeah. That's so much easier than I'd ever imagined. <laughs> I wanted to hear Chuck keep going on that. I know. Yeah, it's pretty good. Has extra consonants it's, it's okay. in it. It throws me off. And then extra vowels. It I ends have, with him just crying. Yeah. I have relatives who can't say it right, and it's their name, so. (laughs) All right, well, uh, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly since you haven't been on the show? Sure. I am the author of NPM, and I've been maintaining Node for the last, um, Jesus, it's been like almost a year and a half now, year or so. Um, So just a couple small projects that nobody's heard of, right? Yeah, (laughs) you know, a handful of little things on GitHub. Wow. Is there anything Um, else we ought to know about you? I enjoy changing my Twitter avatar to things that are funny or disturbing, <laughs> and uh, or preferably both. And um, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, we really yeah, appreciate you coming on the show. Is pretty disturbing, dude. You got the, your face on a on a really overweight cat. That's pretty gnarly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When this it's, comes out in a week, will it have changed? Probably. I, I think it's the, the red and white glow that actually makes it even, even worse. Yeah, I was going to say that. That creepy gradient. Yeah, that <laughs> is pretty gnarly. So, can you tell us a little bit about your backstory with Node? So, sure. I, um, I got into Node very early on. I had uh, I'd been messing around with server-side JS for quite a while because I wanted to stop writing PHP on the server. Um, and the, the fact that I kept switching languages, you know, to do client and server stuff seemed, uh, just like a waste of, waste of brain power. So, um, I poked around with V8 and messed around with some spider monkey stuff. And when I stumbled across Node, I was like, Oh, okay. This is what I've been trying to figure out that I need. And, um, Ryan had already done it. So I just kind of jumped on that bandwagon right away. Since then, I, you know, it was gaining a lot of traction and people were sending these really interesting things to the mailing list that they were doing with node, but it was always a huge, you know, huge pain to install their module and play with it. So I wrote a package manager so that I could basically so that I could mess around with the things that people were sharing on the mailing list. And, uh, you know, that, that ended up kind of becoming somewhat popular in like a, a fixture in the node, uh, ecosystem. And, uh, Next thing I knew, I was working at Joint and helping out with Node itself, and then Ryan got burnt out on it and wanted to go do other things, so I, I stepped up and took over the lead maintenance of the project. Did you get uh, your? Did you go on with uh, Joint because of your work with npm? Then, yeah, actually, um, I was I was looking at another uh, possible job. I, I the job I was at, I wasn't super happy with. I was kind of planning on quitting regardless. And around the same time, my uh, my girlfriend and I were going to move to Oakland because she got a job in in Berkeley. And I mentioned to Ryan, like, "Hey, I'm you know I'm going to be starting this you know this new startup with these guys or something." And he was like, "Oh no 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 no, don't do that! Like, come come to Joint and you'll get a paycheck." I was like, "Oh, <laughs> well, that actually sounds kind of nice." That's awesome. So you get uh, paid you, uh, to work on Node then? I do. Yeah, that and is, that you, is cool. Big thanks to your you, employer. I think of it more as that I get paid to be myself and node is just something that I do. Like they're paying me just to be Isaac and I would actually do that for free, but you know, don't, don't tell them that. Um, (laughs) But if I, if I wasn't getting paid, I would have to, you know, not be Isaac for a part of that time. And so I guess they're just paying me to not waste 
not waste my time at some other job. That seems like you've achieved the programmer dream. That's that seems like one of the most fulfilling things you could do with your career is just do what you want and get paid for it. Yeah, it is. You know, it's a tremendous amount of work, though. You 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 have no idea. Like when it's like, oh, this thing that you were doing some once in a while on the evenings and weekends. Like, what if you did that all day long? So that sounds great. Except, you know, what I didn't realize until I was in this position is then you end up just working twenty four hours a day, (laughs) uh, not careful. So I've 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 definitely, it's definitely been an interesting, good problem to have, though, for sure. Sure. So one thing I've heard you talk about is how Node wants to hit 1.0 and kind of be done with new features. Can you talk about why? I mean, there are lots of frameworks and tools that are obsessed with new features and love new versions and, and fixing stuff and adding new things and stuff. Why, why do you want Node to, or am I mischaracterizing that? No, I don't think you're mischaracterizing it at all. I mean, I think that some people put it a little more strongly than than it actually is. Like, once we get to 1.0, be like Node is never getting a new feature again. Um, I'm sure that there still will be in in, in the real world. There's we're going to hit cases that we didn't anticipate and have to do things to change around. But and also when we get new um, when we pull in new versions of V8, I mean there may be options for opportunities for optimiz- optimizing things differently or you know fixing other like javascript bugs or what have you so there still will be new versions after after 1.0 but the api surface is actually already pretty close to finished there's a few areas that are still a little bit kind of in motion um, but they're they're pretty much all settling and um, certainly our, our http implementation is kind of kind of just a, a pile of garbage um, it works pretty well, but it's got some really <coughs> unsavory code in there that I, I'd like to rip out for um, and, and redo for 0.12. But um, the reason why... We, so anyway, get back to your question. The reason why we want to do this is because really the, the philosophy of Node is that the, the core should be rather small. Um, it should do the sort of the base level things that you need in order to write really good network programs. And so what that means is we need... TCP, HTTP, and datagram um, servers and clients, DNS servers and clients. We actually we don't have a DNS server in, in core right now. We might not ever, but that's gonna that there's already a couple in NPM that you could use if you wanted to. And then above that, like even our HTTP implementation is rather low level. You know, it's Node is not Rails. It's not um, it's not even Apache. You know, it's it's a very low level HTTP implementation that you can use to write your own server logic. And the benefit of doing it that way is that we can get a lot of innovation up above the core in, in user land, in the NPM registry. And the way I look at it is, you know, every, every feature that we add into core is a, is a hard coded decision that nobody gets to change. You know what I mean? Yeah. And nobody really gets to innovate on. It's like in, um, unless we want to go the route of like Python, where, you have this very expansive batteries included standard library, which is good in some cases because, you know, you have an XML parser right away. The problem is that the people working on the core project, there's always going to be fewer people working on the core project than there are working on, you know, all of the modules in NPM, right? Sure. And everything that we put in the core, everybody gets. So, like, if you don't actually give a damn about XML parsers, like, what benefit is it to you that Python has an XML parser built in, or even worse, that it has three, right? Yeah. Also, then, there ends up being this um, political battle, because if you have a really a really full-featured core library, there's no incentive to actually do things in user land in the module space. Since there's no incentive to do things in module space, the module space kind of rots away, and if you can't get your, you know, your pet module into core, effectively, you can't use it, right? So... We've tried to avoid that with, with Node and with NPM. And it's, I think we've done a pretty good job. We've definitely uncovered new problems, problems that Python doesn't have. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm picking on Python a little bit here, but I think to, to varying degrees, it's true of most platforms. I mean, they all have to set this, set this bar somewhere. And wherever you set it, you have a different set of problems. So with Node, we've chosen the problems of, um, of discovery and having a, you know, a little bit of a more difficult time to figure out which modules are good and which ones I should use. On the flip side, we have a much smaller binary and you don't get any modules that you're not using. So 
you know, there's trade-offs there. And um, we also have been able to move a lot more quickly and, and get a lot more innovation in some of these areas because of that. So just to clarify, when you're talking about modules and adding things to core, these are things that you're uh, sticking on top of what you already get from V8? Right. Well, what we what we already get from... when? I, okay, let me back up a bit then. When I say node core, what I mean is all of the functionality that's in the node binary file, right? Right. So all of the JavaScript libraries that are bundled in that V8, libuv, you know, the OpenSSL bindings that we have, the basic set of stuff that's covered in the API, in the node API. Mm -hmm. When I say modules or user space, what I'm talking about is the, the tens of thousands of modules that are on the NPM registry that users have created and published. You know, there's very little ceremony around, uh, getting things into that space. So as a result, I mean, if, you know, if you look up and you find that there's three XML parsers and none of them are really doing what you want, you could just write a new one and publish it and you don't have to ask anyone's permission. As you'd expect, that means that we have a lot more copying of things. But on the other hand, we also have a lot more, you know, different ideas or different takes on things. There might be one that uses promises, one that's written in CoffeeScript, you name it. And even though I think that some of them are bad, like they still get to be used. You know what I mean? And sometimes... If there's something that I personally, as as one of the node maintainers, if I think, well, that's a terrible idea, you know, and and I'm no, I'm not going to bundle that in core. That's awful. What are you doing? Like, people should still be able to kind of experiment with that, right? Even if I think it's stupid. Yeah, and I I loved I love seeing the new streams API and npm. Like, I thought it was really cool seeing some of the core things in Node kind of being able to innovate and experiment inside of the user land stuff too. Yeah, and it's way more flexible that way. I mean, because now we can take this, you know, if you want to use the new streams API, you don't have to wait for 0 0.10 or you don't have to, you know, let's say in 0 0.10 we change some API and that like really messes up your, your day for whatever reason. Um, and it's going to take you a few months to refactor everything to work right or whatever. Like, I, we try to avoid that, but it's kind of unavoidable sometimes. And if you're in that case, in that state and you still want to use the new streams API, like you can, because it's in NPM. You can just pull it in. Um, and I, I really want to continue this pattern. It's been very effective. Um, Fedorian Dutney is also working on a new TLS implementation, which is called TL Snappy. And that's also in, in, in NPM. It's its own project on GitHub. And at some point, we're probably going to pull that into Node Core. But in the meantime, you know, if you want faster TLS, uh, if you want to use that experimental stuff, like you can totally do that. So do you usually write your own packages into core, or do you pull something that already exists into core? That's kind of a complicated question, I guess. I do write a lot of NPM modules and, and maintain a bunch of them. It's relatively recently that we've been able to really experiment or innovate with new core libraries in NPM, but certainly it's it's very valuable if when it is possible because you can get more people using it, more people looking at it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people sort of dismiss unstable releases of Node. You know, they they look at it and say, well, that's not stable. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to bother testing it out. But they're a little more open to experimenting with stuff that's on NPM. Yeah, that's a good point. So when you talk about kind of locking down Node to the core functionality, how is Node going to respond to language innovations? Like, like you see a lot of, for example, modules in ECMAScript 6 classes, things like that. Is Node going to try and update to accommodate the new language kind of features? Well, I think, um, I think that's really hard to say. I mean, there is, there is definitely a bit of a chicken and egg problem because, um, in, in JavaScript language implementations, because you have this, you know, this new language feature, let's say. And it does roughly the same thing as the old language feature. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe it's... And, and at first, it's usually a little bit slower because it's not worth their their effort to optimize it until some people are using it, right? Sure. But nobody wants to use it until it's fast. So if it's doing just the same thing as the old language feature, but slower, like, no, Node, of course, will never, ever pull that in. Now... Over time, like this, grad this gradual iteration gets to a point where you know where classes are faster than using just regular functions and the new keyword, or um, you know where modules are faster than running code that isn't module code. But that's going to take a while, and I try not to plan more than you know more than six or eight months out. So 
I don't know. I mean, sure, maybe, but I wouldn't really like bet the farm on it. I think that in now in user land, like, of course, people will start using new language features as soon as they're available. They already do this, right? But uh, sort of the point of keeping Node really small and and very very stable and getting to a place where we can keep it very very stable is that people can innovate on it and kind of have Node be a known quantity, right? If we're if we're swapping it out and saying like, oh well, don't use require anymore, use import, like. Yeah, all those node programs you've already written are now broken, right? That's completely like we could never do that. I mean, yeah. that's a that's like basically like that would make Python three look like a patch update by comparison. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> God, I, I feel bad. I feel bad. Python's Python's a great language. Every language is the greatest. Every program is wonderful, and every programmer does great work. I I'm not trying to pick on Python here, but like I, I think that was a mistake. Like the making big changes to a platform should just should just never happen. I, same same thing with Perl six, right? Like it's it's a different language. It has different semantics around certain things. Like we can't do that. If we ever do do that, we'll just call it something different. It won't be called Node. It'll be called you know. Dart. So, yeah. Dart. <laughs> so yeah. that brings up a, a question. It's kind of related to that about Node and TC thirty nine. I know some of the people in the Node community are very down on TC thirty nine. I think you're not one of them. I think you're a little bit more open from just stuff I've seen you say. But does, is there anyone on the Node core team or, or that works closely with the Node that is also on TC39? I don't think so. A lot of people who are on TC39 are kind of into JavaScript. So, <laughs> as you, I, I imagine. Um, and so a bunch of them do use Node occasionally, at least whenever they want to write little server programs or whatever. But um, I don't think there's any like you know Node community all stars or or really serious committers um, or contributors who are are working on on TC thirty nine. Do you think that's a that's problem? That's too bad. Well, you know, there's um, there are some there are some wheels turning. I, I think it, we're looking into whether or not it might be worthwhile to have like a, a Node person on TC thirty nine. Um, or a, a joint person or, or something like that, just to kind of keep things going in a direction that's good for us. But really, I mean, it, we've, we've tried hard to not really care too much about the language. You know, like one of the benefits of Node, one of the reasons that we've been able to get to the level of stability that we have so much faster than, uh, than a platform like Python or Perl or Ruby is that we've, we're not messing around with the language. Like, that's a that's a huge huge bunch of work that goes into making a good platform that we just don't have to do you know like the language is handed to us and all we have to do is figure out how to like express this asynchronous io paradigm in that language you could it would be a you know it'd be basically a whole rewrite but you could basically take and write you know bind libuv to some other language with open ssl and a tcp parser and have, or sorry, an HTTP parser, and have something very, very similar to Node in a different language. So, love it. Yeah, exactly. Love it's a good example. Um, there is, uh, there was also some other stuff that was sort of similar. Uh, I think the the oh gosh, I'm going to get this wrong. Daria, I think, is the name of the language that was that's binding with um, with libuv. I'm I'm sure I'm getting that wrong. Some some woman's name language. Anyway, uh, there, there's a few others, and they're they're kind of like. Very Node-ish because really Node is like libuv in JavaScript, you know. But I find that to be kind of a crazy statement, eye-opening for sure and revealing, but uh, crazy. Yeah, we. (laughs) Well, you know, Node was like inspired by what how JavaScript handled I/O, right? It was the hey, JavaScript handles I/O this way. Let's embrace that and put that on the server side. And the fact that, hey, that actually, that paradigm can really isn't specific to JavaScript, just inspired by it. Well, I think that's actually, I think that's actually less true than you imagine. So before, educate me. <laughs> before writing Node, Ryan wrote a lot of Ruby. And, um, yeah, wasn't the HTTP parser for Event Machine? Isn't that what he wrote it for? I don't remember exactly what he wrote it for. And there's, if depending on who you ask, he, he stole it from Zed Shaw. But um <laughs> <laughs> completely, completely patently untrue. But no, he he so he wrote the the um sort of what ended up becoming node on top of libev and libiio. 
becoming somewhat frustrated with having to write things, always having to write HTTP server stuff in C because writing it in Ruby was too slow. And every time you cross between Ruby and, and C, you know, you, you take this big performance hit. And I, I actually, his, I think his first choice of language that he looked into was Haskell. And the idea was like every request would be this, or like an HTTP server would be one function that takes a request and returns a response and, and does some asynchronous stuff in the middle. Um, My jaw just hit the floor. Yeah, it probably wouldn't have been as popular if he went with Haskell. No, no, and, and I mean, <laughs> yeah, okay. Again, every language is great, and every every program <laughs> except PHP. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan was that? setting out to change the world when he did this, right? Yeah, but his his goal. So he wasn't really into JavaScript. He he basically stumbled upon JavaScript because V8 um, had just recently been open sourced and was this like you know, really advanced high-speed virtual machine that he could use to do his C, his uh, his stuff that he was already doing in C. And, like, if you just use LibUV, you can write a program that's very, very similar to a Node program, but is completely in C. Now, it's going to be, like, 100 times as many lines and a m- much bigger pain in the ass to, you know to go through and, and write and read and make changes to because JavaScript's just a much more expressive language. But like you can do callbacks and see they're just they're called function pointers. You know what I mean? And you have to be very careful about how you set everything up and what kind of arguments you're passing and so on and so forth. But like it's really very similar to Node and, and that's really where Node came from. The fact that JavaScript was chosen was mostly owing to the fact that JavaScript did not already have an I.O. paradigm. So it was you know it was feasible to invent something completely new for it. Whereas if you were to write a, uh, if you were to write Node in, say, Ruby or Python, or if you use Event Machine, or uh, what's the other one, Twisted, Tornado, uh, and there's there's any event in Perl, it's, it's great, but it's a little bit like being paleo, like being on a paleo diet and going to McDonald's. Like, you have to be very, very careful what you order, you know? So, it's really easy to say, like, okay, well, I need a, uh, I need a module that reads a comma delimited files or something. And like, next thing you know, you're, you know, you're blocking every request to read your config files because they're, um, being read synchronously. So in Node, it was just, the idea was to make it as, make it the default to do things the right way. I have a question on kind of a different, uh, tactic, and that is, we're talking to you about an engine that we use to run our JavaScript on our servers. And you probably spend most of your time writing C++ in order to make it work. Do you feel that there's a disconnect at all between the two? I, I actually write mostly JavaScript. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, Node is, Node is written mostly in JavaScript. There is, um, well, I guess that's not true. I mean, if you, if you count lines of code in the project, it's mostly C++, but that's because it's mostly V8. Mm-hmm. But Node itself, you know, we have a, we have a source folder which has some, some wrappers around libuv constructs and a few like things that you just kind of have to do in C, um, C++. And then we try to get into the JavaScript layer as quickly as possible, though. Yeah, I saw that in your talk. Uh, what, what's like the percentage, if you took out the V8, if you, or if you're excluding that, not considering it, what's like the ratio of JavaScript code to C++ code? Let me see. If I had to guess... I would say that there's about 28,314 lines of C++ in the source folder. <laughs> and just roughly? Just off the top of my head, there's about 21,265 lines of JavaScript in the lib folder. Awesome. Huh. And so... I mean, that's just a, that's just a guesstimate. You know, don't, don't quote me on that. I don't know. <laughs> um, so how much of that C-, C and C++ code is uh, external libraries that you depend on? Oh no! That so that that's just the source folder. Everything okay. that's everything that's in uh, uh, depths is in his external stuff. Okay. And remember um, that one line of JavaScript is roughly equivalent to twenty-five lines of C. Maybe is, that, uh, is it? Is it? Is it twenty-five? I, that sounds about right. But <laughs> is there some like data or something? I wish. You're oh wow! I I wrote um, this thing libevn with a friend that. That is, um, evented networking in C and just followed the node API. And I, I remember it being about that much. Yeah. I, that, that, that sounds about right for, to me. It's probably about, 
about 25 to 1. Yeah, so it, also most Node users are not C++ programmers. So most Node users are much more comfortable digging through and like tracking down bugs and sending us patches if we do more of our work in JavaScript. Plus, um, V8 is really good at optimizing JavaScript. So if you write it, you know, if you write really small functions, if you... Um, if you try to make sure that you always send the same types of things around, then V8 will do a really good job optimizing your JS. Yep. Hmm. So one thing I think it'd be cool to talk about is the new streams API, because that's one of the big changes in Node 10, or Node.10. Why, what motivated that change? I guess we should talk about what they are first for people that don't really know. So basically, yeah, we, we, we created a unified streams API. There, there kind of wasn't one. There was sort of this pattern that we were using, and there was a stream base class, but you had to implement everything about a stream yourself. So a stream is a sequence of data, right? From that goes from a start to a finish. I mean, it's like, uh, and they might be the the data might be separated in time, like a, a flow of data from like a TCP connection, or if you're reading a file start to finish, or if you, you know, are doing things like this. And then there's also writable streams, which are the same thing, but you're sending it to someone else. So we had this pattern where a readable stream would emit data events, and you could call pause to tell it, like, hey, okay, hold on a second. Don't give me any, don't give me any more data just yet. And you could call resume to tell it, okay, now I'm, I'm ready to receive more. And then on the writable side, you would call write and pass in some data, and you would, and then write would return true if the, the other side wanted you to send more data or it would return false if, if it wanted you to slow down. So then we added this thing called pipe, which is like you could take a readable thing and say all the data that comes out of this, write it into the writable side and pause and resume at the right times based on the right the return from the right method. So that was kind of good. The problem that we found, there was a handful of problems that we found. So the first is that pause was actually only advisory. And so even if you call pause, you might still get one or two other data events coming through. And this mostly was owing to the way that our HTTP and TCP interaction worked. Uh, because TCP has, or TCP has its own framing, but then HTTP is framed messages on top of that. So in one TCP packet, you may get, you know, the headers, you may get like the end of one message and then the headers and then the start of the next, right? Like all in one TCP chunk. Yeah. And so with HTTP, then we needed to emit the end on the first one, start a new message, and then we have this like little snippet of body, right? So what we would do is just send it right away. Um, ended up working around that, but still it kind of sucks that you were getting like, you get an HTTP request and like it just starts throwing data at you right away uh, before you ever even tell it that you want to start reading from it. So if you want to get like, let's say, look at the headers and see if the authorization is valid. And you need to go look in a database to see that. Okay, so you go look in the database and you come back and now you've missed the first bit of the response or the first bit of the, the request body. So that sucks. And also, if you're writing, um, what I found a lot is if you're writing like these parsers that are taking data in, in chunks, sometimes what you really want to say is like, give me 10 bytes of data, right? Yeah. And you that's be able really to predictively... hard. Yeah, that's so hard to do with data events because now what you need to do is like you get a data event, you see if it has enough. If it doesn't have enough, you store it. Then you wait for there to be more. And once you're going to get too much, and then you just kind of have to like what, like re-emit it or something with the rest. I don't know. It just it's a it's a kind of a mess. Also, uh, every stream in Node had its own like top to bottom implementation of this stuff. So. Some of them were doing buffering differently. Some of them had set encoding. Some of them didn't. Some of them paused. For some of them, pause was advisories. For some of them, it, it was a strict, you know, start buffering if you need to. And it just, we, I was constantly finding bugs with one that didn't exist in another. It was a huge, huge, huge pain. So, um, we, we have long known that we needed a, a consistent implementation of this. And especially because writing streams in user land is really hard. Like we had all these talks saying like streams are great. You should use streams. And then people would sit down and be like, okay, well, I'm going to write this thing as a stream. And then like look at the API and like <laughs> just no help. It's very difficult. You know what I mean? There's a lot of moving parts and you have to get them all exactly right. Yeah. What I love about the new one is it's easy to do the right thing as opposed to the old one. It was easy to do the wrong thing or to skip doing the right thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then of course, I mean, everything gets everything's easy until you deal with TCP and TL and especially TLS, where there's you know lots of these kind of like very specific semantics around how you do things. But um, I, I'm pretty happy with where it ended up. Yeah, that'd yeah. Be great. I've run it over and I love it. I think that it solves all my pain points. Cool. So how much refinement do you think is going to go through between now and the next version? Uh, Streams API, I don't think it'll go through much. I think that's pretty solid. Uh, we may find some, some edge cases. There's already a few, um, a few sort of minor bugs that don't actually change any semantics, but things that people have found that are probably going to go into 0.10.1. Um, between now and 0.12, I don't expect any changes there, though. Nice. So, so do you follow, uh, what is it, semantic versioning on Node? Well, sort of. I mean, our versions have a certain semantics sort of baked into them. I think that stuff like semver.org is kind of okay, um, but that's, that's like one thing that you could communicate with, with version numbers. I think what's more important is that version numbers can carry semantics, but it's really up to humans to put those semantics there, right? Mm -hmm. So in Node, um, every even-numbered minor version is a stable family, I guess. So from 0.10.0 up through 0.10.0, you know, 35, we're going to have a consistent API, consistent binary interface, the whole bit. Uh, we will fix bugs, but go very, very far out of our way to avoid adding any API, even if it means that we keep a bug around. Once we go to the next uh, stable branch, then that's where you'll see actual bug fixes, changes to APIs, things that are kind of redesigned or re reconsidered. And then, so like 0 0.11 is what we're going to be hacking on until it becomes stable, and then we bless it, and I write a long blog post, and we call it 0 0.12. How many people use uh, 0 0.11 as you're working on it? How many common? How common is it for people to use the experimental version? I, I think people have gotten a little bit more friendly with using experimental versions, at least to test things out, but certainly nobody really uses it in production in a serious way. So it's it's mostly people who are like, Writing modules, um, I, I mean, I use it. Like, I, I pretty much live on, on Node Master as my real local Node install. So, um, for the whole time we're developing it. Uh, even if that's sometimes rather painful, I try to just kind of feel the pain and, and fix it rather than fall back to the stable version. Yeah, it seems like a good way to go to figure out where the, where the problems are. Yeah. Well, and especially because then, you know, stuff like, like I use Node for a lot of things that I do, right? Like I'll, I'll I write some Node modules and uh, you know do stuff with npm, obviously. And so when we break something that breaks npm, at least I notice right away, you know, which we should pr pretty much never do. That that always means that something went wrong. <laughs> so so can we talk a little bit about npm? Sure. I think we've waxed poetic about npm before on this show, but it's. It's so good. Oh man, it's so good oh, that thanks. it makes using other languages worse because <laughs> simply because of their package management. Even if the language is something I enjoy more than JavaScript, it's painful to not be able to easily install third-party stuff. Oh, thanks. Um, it, it seems like npm is pretty stable. I mean, are are you still iterating on npm? Are you still trying to add features or things? I I think, I mean, npm is a little bit more of a playground than than Node. You know, it's um. It's more easy to justify adding a feature to it because it's, you know, not something that's going to be running on your production HTTP server. And so, if there's something that sure. can make your life a little more, a little more pleasant, like, yeah, sure, we should add that to npm. Um, that being said, I think the main reason why it hasn't been iterated on as much is because I've been busy with Node. There are some definite like, what are the pain points? I mean, what would you want to iterate on with npm? So as just a I, casual user, it just seems like it works, and I I can't imagine more stuff that it would do besides install packages. Well, it probably shouldn't be doing more stuff, um, that's for sure. But uh, the way it's actually implemented is pretty awful. And I mean, I I suppose I have a different view of npm than most people, but uh, like the the code base is a complete and just just a god awful. Whole. <laughs> it's like. Everything about NPM is great except for the code. Yeah. <laughs> the patterns are great. The community is great. The way it's been taken up has been awesome. But like, 
it's something that's just kind of evolved and it originally was developed before we had npm obviously so like some of the decisions that went into it are kind of like stupid in terms of like how modules are how its modules are broken up and and how the code is organized it's just kind of a mess so there is this there's have this one you never rewritten from scratch oh i've rewritten it from scratch a few times but um not in the last couple of years okay so in the first few iterations, yeah, I basically rewrote it from scratch about every couple months. But yeah, since it's become a, a stable thing, I mean, I, it really kind of hurts to break stuff. A lot of people get really upset. So, you know, that makes a rewrite a lot more difficult. There is this one file, though, the file that actually, you're going to laugh, but like the file that does two things, basically. It takes a, a package descriptor, like, you know, foo at version or a URL or a path to a tarball or what have you. It takes that and it puts it in the cache folder. Then it also takes whatever is in the cache folder and puts it in a particular location. That file is like 1,200 lines, which is like roughly 10 times what it probably should be. I mean, that should be like its own package that lives apart from everything else and is just, you know, in the NPM registry. And the fact that it's not and it's all kind of like tightly woven into everything else is just kind of awful, right? So there's there's a lot of stuff like that. That's a cool idea. You hear about that with compilers a lot, like self-hosted compilers, but a self-hosted package manager where NPM is made up of packages that you install with NPM? Well, it kind of already is that way. It's just not done as well as it could be. Um, the Once upon a time, the first thing that NPM always did was install itself. And uh, it's it's only since the like mid-0.6 releases where it builds with Node. So basically, it sounds like there's a lot of internal cleanup that that you would like to do that wouldn't necessarily change behavior, but that would make it easier to read and understand and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, it would enable us to make the shrink wrap command um, actually do like byte level consistency. So you could say like if the you know I shrink wrap a particular version number, but if that version number changes, if the checksum changes, then you know abort call that an error yeah the way it's implemented right now like it was originally written using the system tar and gzip programs because there was no i you know there was no javascript tar implementation and there was no gzip in, in node so it's still doing a lot of like just stupid things where it's copying files more frequently than it needs to and and into more places than it needs to and so really um all of that stuff can be really streamlined and i, I mean i think that we can make it so that installing a package takes does about a third as much uh, file systems work than it currently does, which is a big a big portion of its time that it's spending now. So we can make it a lot faster, more reusable, you know, better abstracted chunks and so on. Now that you're uh, maintaining Node, how much time do you get to spend on NPM? It depends on how much time I'm spending on Node. I mean, basically the rest, but uh, not that often. Every every few weeks, I'll like sit down and go through a bunch of bugs and and pull recs and, and try to kind of clean things up or, or keep stuff from completely falling apart. Um, lately, I've gotten a lot of help from from a few people who are uh, going through and sort of testing bugs and making sure that they're still valid and, and stuff like that. So that's been great. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely a little bit of a number two priority at the moment for me. Yeah, we should so, make Jameson take over maintaining NPM for you. Oh, yeah, you'd, you'd want that for sure. <laughs> you would want that. Jameson's amazing. Everything he touches turns to gold or algorithms. Really what I want is somebody to just, like, rewrite it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, throw out all the Present code. It to you all packaged up. Beautiful. Yeah, rewrite a completely new thing called NPM2, and I'll take a look at it and be like, yep, this is better. It's yours now. <laughs> um, I don't know. It, I mean, it would have to be exactly the same, uh, same functional API though, because otherwise it would be a nightmare to get everybody to start using it. Yeah. All right. I'll keep that in mind when I'm considering all the free time I have and what projects I want to take on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it's okay. sort of like it's sort of like a solved problem. Like, why why would you spend your waste your your day doing that? Yeah. To make you feel better. <laughs> Obviously. Um, so you said you don't want to talk or you don't plan too much about the future, but I mean, what does the future hold for you? Do you want to be doing Node like five years from now? Do you imagine it'll just be done? You'll be moved on to other things or, or what? 
I sure hope that maintaining Node is not a full-time job in five years. Um, if it is, I hope it's not mine. I, I don't think I would last that long. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, my hope is that, uh, that we can automate more of what goes into building releases and, and, and sort of managing the project. And um, there's a guy at, who's recently started at, at Joint. Called, uh, his name's TJ Fontaine. And he's been doing stuff with Jenkins and, and automated continuous integration stuff. And I, um, eventually we're planning on, you know, we're going to get nightlies out soon and eventually just automate the entire release process. That would the, be really, really cool. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, life would be about the same for everybody else, but for me, it would just be so nice. <laughs> uh, there's there's so much manual pro so many manual steps that go into that, and every time we add a new kind of installer or a new kind of binary, it's like just another manual step, right? So it's it's gotten kind of out of hand. And yeah, and also if you know if we're not changing the API much, then that means that our we could just have new releases that are kind of pegged to a new V8 version, and not have to worry too much about about that stuff breaking. You know, I mean, stuff won't break in new ways unless you change it. Yeah. And so then you're only adding new packages to core when you absolutely need them. And otherwise you're just, yeah, you're just sticking with V8 and everything else that you already have. Yep. Pretty much. One, one thing you mentioned with Node and with NPM and the philosophy of keeping everything in user land that's a problem is discovery. And I know yes. the way I do it is just look at the number of stars on GitHub or whatever, like Google, Node, whatever this module is that I need, and then find the one with the most stars. Um, is NPM thinking about doing anything to help with discovery? I mean, what thoughts, yes. what ideas do you have to make discovery easier beyond just what's popular on GitHub? So I think um, I think we can do a little, we, we have the data to do a little bit better than just what's popular on GitHub. Um, what we don't have is like, you know, the, the templates and implementation and, and code to crunch the data. So what I'd like to do is actually augment what's popular on GitHub with what's popular in NPM. And in particular, what's popular with module authors that you think are good authorities on the so subject. Kind of weight it based on certain right. people's reputation or something. Right. I think, um, you know, just to paint in really broad strokes, uh, from what I've seen, there is um, a couple of different kinds of like schools of thinking about how you should do modules and how you should organize Node programs, and um, I, I sort of think of these as like the Substack school, the uh, the TJ Holloway Chuck school of thinking, and the Nojitsu style of of doing things. Um, and they're all they're all very good in their own way, but like they there will be a very different reaction to a particular module based on whether or not it's the kind of style that you like. So what I'd like to do is somehow figure out a way to sort of algorithmically do that. So if you, um, and, and also to let new approaches sort of emerge out of this ecosystem, right? Since that's how these things came about. But if, if you tend to like modules, like, you know, the, the things that, that Substack is writing, then maybe this other thing that is liked by other people who like the same thing, or is from a module author who likes those same modules, you know, you'll, you'll see that as more of a, a as a higher ranking option. Interesting. So you're talking about sort of a recommendation engine, sort of like what you get on like Netflix or something. Yeah, kind of. And I, I think that it's, uh, I think that it's something that we can conceivably do in a, in a deterministic algorithmic way. Uh, another thing that I'd like to start doing is exposing quality of modules. So, you know, does this thing actually build on this or that version of this OS and then maybe you can filter so that you say only show me modules that all their tests pass on Linux or something. Mm -hmm. To that end, what about something like a a generic JS hint that doesn't check style, just checks like code quality type stuff? That is there a you get a thumbs a up or a thumbs answer? down? Like, is there a, an objective answer to code quality that you could encode in a parser or something? Though I don't know. Well, no, no like if you just take the JS hint options that aren't based on styling so like not the indenting or whether you do comma first or whatever you know like don't don't check on those things but check on the things that actually affect whether or not the code will run as expected like well, if functions are being declared inside of if blocks and that you know that kind of stuff where if you don't understand how javascript works 
or even if you do and you're doing that, you're making potential mistakes kind of thing. You're like oh, a gold star system. Like this passes these these options of JS hint or it doesn't. Yeah. So I, I think uh, I think CPAN is actually the 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 definite leader in this area. Um, they have a, a measure of quality, which is spelled with a K, to you know <laughs> not not Sex tell you up. that it's yeah yeah. Up. Yeah, for that, but also because it's not just strictly quality. It's it's like a measure of a few different things, which some of you, some of which you might care about, and some of which you might not. But overall, you know, it's it's a it's a heuristic, and it's they don't try to say it's anything other than a heuristic. But it includes stuff like whether or not this thing has a build script, whether or not it's executable, whether or not it actually builds on different operating systems, if the tests pass, and so on and so forth. If it's using any deprecated APIs, that kind of thing. And I think that that's definitely something we could do. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, like if you if you have a module that um, that works with Node zero six but doesn't work with zero eight or zero ten, like it'd be nice to know that right away. Like, hey, this this thing hasn't been touched, but not because it's finished. <laughs> you know, because it's just broken and old and nobody cares about it. On yeah. the other hand, if there's if there's a module that hasn't been touched because it's done and it works and everybody's using it, like maybe that's kind of a good thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, we're almost out of time. Are there any other topics that we would be remiss in not covering? I was going to say, I'm just super excited that uh, now you can run Node in strict mode and all the core modules are strict mode compliant. That that like makes me so happy because now you got jQuery, Node, Grunt, and I'm sure there's another dozen other like big name projects that are all strict mode now. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't enforce it, but we do definitely um, enable it. And... Uh, it's nice that there's that V8 flag that can that can turn it on. I mean, that might be another thing in quality. Like maybe if you if it fails to run in strict mode, then there's some kind of problem. The thing that really, honestly, like I've still mm, so upset about the 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 octal number literals. Like I, I accept that most node that most JavaScript prob, uh, programs don't really care about octal literals, but like node programs care a lot about those. <laughs> We have so many octoliterals, it's ridiculous. And now we have to like do parsint and give a string or something. Yeah. Every time AJ so, mentions the word use strict, octoliterals are his his straw man. I don't know. Yeah. He just like, touched his hot button topic. I, I wanted to ask one question. I know I don't have a ton of time to spend on this, but but what's your advice for people who need some encouragement to get it uh, adopted in their enterprise stack? I mean, a lot of people have sort of like like a lot of the node strategies for deployment are, are restarting the process, you know, because people still aren't, there's not a lot of documentation on finding memory leaks, for example, or debugging. And I know that nodes come a long way with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there anything that you can do to try and encourage people for the adopting node? There's actually four companies that I mentioned in the, in the blog post. And I'm, I'm very grateful to all four of them and for what they're doing for the node project. But um, in particular, if you want to use node in your, in your company, they're all kind of, Worthwhile, worth mentioning. The first is Joyent, who is my employer. They provide really good hosting, and they've actually made a lot of tools that make it at least reasonable to track down. I mean, tracking down memory leaks in C programs is also kind of tricky, and our tooling is not as good as, not quite as good as Valgrind. But um, there's a lot of stuff with Dtrace and MDB that you can actually take a core and see where your memory, you know, profile your memory, and and do these other really interesting things to trace how your program's running. The next one up is the Node Firm, which does a lot of like consulting and support and um you know, they're they're not like a normal consulting firm though. They're not there to kind of run in and build a node program for you and then run out. Like their their goal is to actually train up your staff and, you know, talk to the people who can make decisions and make them feel a little better about using Node and, and also provide support for when things go sideways. The third one is the uh uh, this new company, Strongloop, which is actually they're actually building a um, Node distro that they're they're supporting their particular distro of of Node, their distribution, which has uh, Node and it's bundled with a handful of modules that they're you know verifying actually work with with that build of Node. The last is uh, Iris Couch, which actually is the company that runs the NPM registry. And so if you're using a registry internal in your organization, they have something called Iris NPM, which you can use to have you know exactly the same kind of high availability stuff that the uh the main registry uses but in your firewall in your in your data center oh cool um so and and i think that in this space it's really growing quickly you know a lot of companies 
are starting to kind of see Node as a real thing. And, you know, they see Microsoft using it, they see Joint using it, they see Voxer becoming this big popular thing. And, and those sites all kind of seem to be staying up and not getting hacked too badly. So, <laughs> you know, maybe we can try this. And, it, and I, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the benefits of, of, you know, writing network programs relatively easily is worth taking a little bit of a risk. And that risk is lowering as more, uh, more services come into this space. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. I'm sorry to cut this off. I really, I'm really excited about all the stuff that we've talked about, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're up on our time. So, cool. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, make Joe start us off with picks. All right, so I've got um, just uh, one main pick that I'm going to pick here. It's a it's a book. It's called uh, Wild at Heart. Um, it's a <clears throat> kind of a very introspective book for men, and it's about like the nature of being a man. And uh, it's written from a Christian standpoint, Christian point of view. Uh, it's very it's it's a really good book uh, for the typical. It's a little bit different than the typical self-help book that I read, but I really liked it quite a bit, so I'm going to pick that. Nice. If you read that book, do you just instantly grow a mustache? <laughs> yes. I, can, I could use a book like that. <laughs> Not a book on how to become a hipster. <laughs> yeah. You know I have a hormone disorder. <laughs> All right, Jameson, what are your picks? I have two picks. One pick is the band The Aquabats. I've been doing a few of their shows, and I it was a long time ago, and I was just feeling sad, and I Googled a bunch of their videos on YouTube, and they're amazing. It's uh, wonderful, childlike ska music. It's so good. The other Yay, one is the a, world is right again. Jameson picked music. Yeah, it's been a while. Huh? I found out there's a lot of Aquabats fans around here, too, I guess. Makes sense. To, I think they're from Utah. Um, my other pick is... Um, it's actually a blog post by Isaac, not to stroke your ego too much or anything, but he was talking about um, user feedback and, and how to correctly respond to user feedback that seems crazy to you by, by thinking about how it's, it's probably not crazy. There's probably something behind that, even if the actual request seems weird. So it's a good one. Check it out. All right. Merrick, what are your picks? So I actually have three picks. The first one is going to be uh, O'Reilly's Fluent Conference. They draw in all sorts of different, uh, just great speakers that are really big names like Brendan Eich and, and uh, Paul Irish, these kinds of guys. Um, they cover a lot of stuff. So like Node, HTML5, it, it's a big conference. Uh, you can go to fluentconf.com for the schedule. Happens May 28th to the 30th. Uh, it's at the Hilton Union Square in San Francisco. And uh, for our listeners, you can actually get 20% off on your ticket using J-A-V-A-J-A-B, so that's Java Jab. Unfortunately, that's the code we got. Uh, and that'll get you 20% off on the registration. So uh, hopefully you guys, I'll see you there. The second pick is So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. It's a book. Uh, I look at people like uh, uh, Isaac or Ryan, um, and these guys are, we all kind of joke, they have the programmer dream. And the book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, is a heavy focus on skills rather than passion to create work that you have passion about. And uh, stories like theirs, I kind of see emulated in that book. The last one is Heart of the Swarm, uh, StarCraft II. Expansion came out. It's awesome. And that's it. Awesome. AJ, what are your picks? Oh, boy. All of them, actually. I have everything you can pick I've got today. So, quick, Grunt.js. Amazing. I don't know why I didn't take the time to learn it before. Muchas gracias to Merrick because he sat down with me for about 40 minutes and just showed me how to convert my project over. And then I went and I made a, a screencast on how to do it as well. JS Hint. I might have picked that before, but I love it. It just makes life so much easier. GIMP for all the times when Photoshop is too complicated. Um, you just want that programmer UI. <laughs> Yep. I yeah. just I couldn't I couldn't figure out how to do something in Illustrator and so I opened up GIMP and I got it done in like two seconds and I was like, hurrah. Okay, maybe not two seconds, because GIMP is still kind of complicated, but it was anyway. Um Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's another book. It's called And Another Thing. I just read the first page of it. Seems hilarious. Um Who wrote it? Because didn't uh, uh what's his name? Donald Adams 
Pascal. Uh, Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams. Adams. Yeah. So this guy is, I don't know how to pronounce it. Owen Coffer. Owen, Owen, I guess it's Owen. Yeah. It's just Owen. It's just spelled weird. Owen Coffer. And I, I think what they did was he had already had some manuscripts or something that he had started for the book. And so they raided his computer and got the gist of what the, the the last book was going to be. And then they handed it off to this guy to let him kind of take some creative liberty and, and work through it and finish it. And then let's see. Last FM has a free download section and one of their uh, free downloads is a song that's probably way too not cool for anyone to like but me, but it's called Hawaii. And it's by Blackbird and Blackbird. So I'll post all that in the notes. All right. Um, I'll go ahead and go next. Um, my first pick, I had this problem where um, Mac OS kept telling me that my boot hard drive was filling up. And so I started looking around to see where all of the space was taken up and moved a bunch of stuff off of my um, SSD onto the other drives I have in my Mac Pro. And it was still complaining that it was close to full. And I realized that my downloads directory was full of stuff. Um, and it was full of some stuff that I wanted to keep and some stuff that I wanted to not keep. And so um, I looked around and I picked... Uh, a program called Hazel, and I heard about it on the Mac Power Users podcast, so I'm probably going to pick that one too. Um, but what it does is you can set up rules for it to watch a particular folder or a set of folders, and then just apply those rules to that folder. So, for example, if I download something that is a .zip, then um, Hazel will automatically unzip it for me, and then it has other rules, like if it's a .app, then it'll move it into my applications folder, if it's a .dmg, then it'll move it into my installers folder, um, you know, and it moves it off of my main disk so that I can just deal with it. Um, and and I'm, I'm really, really happy with it, really loving it. And uh, when I set up the rules, it actually did a whole bunch of other stuff to just get that stuff out of the way. So now I have everything neatly organized off on one of my, um, one of my internal drives that's not my main. SSD drive. So Hazel's my first pick, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, my second pick is the Mac Power Users podcast, like I said before. Um, it's just a great show. It's done by David Sparks and, um, oh, I forget her name. Uh, the only reason I remember his name is because he goes by Mac Sparky online. But anyway, they go in depth on um, all kinds of things related to running a Mac. And, uh, I, I just I, I just really, really like the show. Um, they do such a great job in covering all of the different angles. They're both attorneys, and so they're both pretty um, thorough in their approach to to the way they use their computer. And uh, it it's a terrific show. Um, it was picked up by 5x5.tv, which is Dan Benjamin's podcast network a while back. And uh, so anyway, he's been he's been helping move them along that way. Um, can't say enough good things. So anyway, those are my two picks and, uh, we'll throw it over to Isaac. What are your picks? So the, the first pick in that, that blog post about giraffes, uh, giraffes and ladders, the, um, the, my first pick is a book that has kind of changed my life quite a bit. It's called nonviolent communication. And it's one of these things like that's basically advanced common sense. And so the, the, the hard part is realizing you don't already know this stuff. But it's it's powerful. It's powerful stuff. You should get this book, read it several times, practice it. It will change how you work with people. Is that then, the source of the all programming languages are great, all programs are wonderful comment? No, 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 no. That was that was total violence. That was snarky, <laughs> backhanded stuff. No, I'm just kidding. That, that's basically just I, I want to not cause more drama than I need to. But sure. when somebody comes at you screaming in your face, it's like, how, how do you deal with that without just screaming back? I mean, a lot of uh, therapists use it, and I think that most of real-world software development is effectively like dealing with crazy people, including yourself. So it's a really uh, powerful tool to have in your in your toolbox. And that's it for now. I mean, I pretty much talked about everything else I like. So yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned that book because I have I have had it come up in so many different conversations. I just haven't gotten around to reading it yet, but. It, when it comes across my radar that many times, I think I really need to pick it up and figure it out, figure out what it's about. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's very very powerful. 
That's that's all I can say. It will give you powers. Awesome. Uh, well, I mean, it's one of these things where like somebody comes at you screaming about how, what an awful, terrible person you are, and you can either turn that into a fight or you can leave with them like thanking you. Oh, that makes sense. That is you a know, superpower. <laughs> Does it and teach I, you how to leave with their wallet? <laughs> um, no. So that's that's another book which is also really really powerful called um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> uh, which is which is basically like how to be a how to be an effective long term sociopath and not make enemies. <laughs> but, uh, Probably the best description of that book I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, but no, non nonviolent communication is extremely powerful. All right, we'll check them out. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Isaac. Really, really appreciate you being here. No problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to have you back sometime. But cool. Uh, Anyway, we'll wrap up the show. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll catch you all in a week. And, all right. uh, don't forget to use that code to get into FluentConf. <laughs>